everyone, and thank you so very much for joining us today on another episode of Talking Cloud. My name is Grant Asplund. I'm here with my expert and great friend, Patrick Pusher. Patrick, how you doing, man? Buddy, I'm doing well, although I have to be honest, uh, the snow returned this week. And, and, you know, even for way up here, the snow in April kind of sucks, although you had a big dump like the other week, a, a big dump, uh, right? It's, I couldn't believe it. I, so I was on the freeway yesterday driving back from a conference I spoke at, and on the way home went through two squalls that was hail, and they were really nasty ones. And I'm not kidding. We were we came we weren't at the front of it right we weren't the first ones going into it those people were in the median i mean there were five cars just scattered all around really? i don't yes. think they were prepared to be on all those little marbles of ice yeah i mean it was just nuts but yeah we've had kooky weather in fact monday morning i got up i looked out the window they had said we may get a trace down at the valley floor, which is where I live. Dude, three inches. I know you sent me that four, picture. Four, I was, four, I mean, looks like Canada. It looks was, like my homeland. It was crazy. So, yeah. yeah, we definitely had some very unusual uh, weather, but it almost seems par for the course on how things have been these last couple of years, man. Lots of weird oh, yeah. stuff. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, just lots of lots of weird stuff, and uh, but man, I'm super excited because I'm finally getting out and getting a chance to uh, get in front of people. First time in two and a half years, I spoke uh, live uh, down in Denver and again in yeah, Seattle, and you know, really, really happy about that. But yes. uh, looking yes. forward to when we can be in the same city together soon, my man. Uh, soon. We'll do it soon. Um, but listen, let's jump into the news. There's some interesting headlines I found that okay. I wanted to kind of throw out there with you. Um, and so this was the first one. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, I got friends uh, at Gigamon, okay? Uh, but I'm telling you, I, I saw the headline of, you know, the most important cloud security factor. That was what was the clickbait title. Uh, and, and I clicked on it and I, I get this. Now, sponsored, obviously, press release, but the most important cloud security factor is visibility you know if there is not a captain obvious yes. stupid statement this is kind of pathetic that this is how we're who who can find anything if they can't see i mean you I know, know come know. on it's, it's up there with you know you can't if you can't see it you can't secure it yeah, no 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 shit right i mean let's just let's call, let's call exactly. it what it is of course i have to yeah, be able to exactly. see everything to be able to secure it that's you know do do we need a survey and a and a web page on the internet yet another one to tell us that i i it just to me is quite remarkable right that um that this is this is what this is what people are pumping out as the most important thing. 
Yeah. I got to get to my screen again here, Patrick. So hang on a second. And hopefully I'll be able to uh, get back to the right window. All good. But yeah, here I am. You, okay. You're, you're right. It is interesting that this is the, the, the top thing. Maybe it just speaks to how not elementary, it's the wrong word, how foundational the challenges once you move to the cloud really are, how those assumptions yeah. break down, right? I, I can't see things. I don't know where, you know, when I'm, when I'm using services as a service, I expect to see more detail and I don't. And I don't know how to troubleshoot yeah. problems when I don't have that detail, right? Maybe it just boils down to that. But at this point in 2022, it just seems a little bit, uh, a little bit elementary. So for me, it reminds me very much in the days when VMware came out. Right, and all of a sudden, I had a, a, a an ESX server that had, you know, twenty, thirty, sixty VMs sure. running, right, and, and not having that uh, visibility between VMs, that intra VM communication. Of course, um, yeah, that was that that was a big deal, and obviously, it was kind of like the one you if you had that solution, you were pounding on it, but. Uh, this reminds me very similarly as you look at moving into cloud. Um, it, it's to me again, uh, Captain Obvious for sure. Interesting here, they're talking about uh, increasing complexity and cost hinder successful management of multi cloud. I think that that's pretty much every vendor's hook uh, when it comes to their solution in the cloud, right? multi-vendor because no yes. cloud vendors really working to optimize for the other two or three. That's right. Um, That's right. But uh, anyway, enough bashing on Gigamon. Thanks for pointing out the obvious. This is the next one I found that was interesting. Um, and, you know, I'm being honest, when I first looked at it, I thought I saw SSL and I just recalled back when I worked at Blue Coat and there was a bug discovered, this was like 2016, I want to say, mm -hmm. um, but there was a bug discovered in OpenSSL. And virtually every security vendor on the planet used those libraries. In some way, that's and right. And so it was really an earth shaker. Um, but this I still found interesting because it's actually taking some action. It looks like while they'll still support the elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman key exchange, they're implementing this n-true prime algorithm that apparently is able to resist brute force attacks. Um, and this we know is one of the attributes or capabilities we're expecting from quantum computing, right? right? As it evolves, right. it's, you know, it's going to become Hulk and just be able to break anything. But That's I right. thought, I thought this was interesting, but I think you actually first pointed this out. Um, it is interesting that they're actually taking action and they reference yeah. NIST here. And, uh, Patrick, it reminded me when I was, uh, selling IoT security, and everybody was just clamoring for NIST, 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 and their guidelines and mm -hmm. protocols. Mm -hmm. And when they finally published, it was dreadful because it was almost like they were back in the horse and buggy days. They just, you know, they're right yeah. for IoT with footprints of, of hundreds and hundreds of K when, I mean, footprints were in single-digit K, right? I mean, 
uh, it was just really, really bad. And so, you know, I know they've come out recently and kind of tried to sharpen the pencil, but NIST has kind of lost their luster. It seems like there's some other organizations that are ahead and doing a better job. MITRE might be one that comes to mind, you know, in terms right, of just right. maybe some rec- recommendations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more, yeah. a little more agile, perhaps. Right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think NIST is in the unique position of sort of being on, being relied upon by maybe the world's most conservative industries, right? And so I think yeah. they're, it's it, they're in a tough spot. I, yeah, I agree. I think uh, the, what I liked about the article you're sharing there is that uh, you know they're actually doing something today. There's so much speculation around how quantum is going to affect mostly sort of algorithms. But yeah, even imagine like a, a quantum-backed brute force attack. I mean, is there anything that could withstand that? I, you know, I, I sort of doubt it. We're barely keeping force with the, the non-quantum ways that the bad guys yeah, need right. brute force, right? So, um, right? so yeah, I think the takeaway is they are not waiting for this NIST work group and, and eventual standard to evolve their taking action today, which is interesting. I think they're among the first, I think, to do so. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. So the last one I found I wanted to talk about um, is this one. Five. Now, again, I'm not trying to be a basher or anything, but, you know, when I look at a headline, it's important to me to be a leading indicator of what I'm going to get. Of course. Okay. That's five, I'm going to invest my time based on that headline, right? Uh, right. Five common cloud misconfiguration errors. And, you know, I read through what, uh, Mr. Zurier uh, has to say, and um, you know, he points out a Cloud Security Alliance 51 thought misconfigurations is one of the leading concerns. Of course, we know that, right? Gardner said 99% of all misconfig or failures are going to be the uh, user's fault. It's going to be through these misconfigurations. But he, you know, he jumps kind of all over, and then. He goes uh, uh, down. Here are the five. Unrestricted inbound and outbound ports. Well, I mean, that's not, I mean, he's not really talking about a specific misconfiguration. I guess he's saying, you know, this is a problem area. Sloppy port hygiene. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Which is is not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong. However, in this day and age, can't we get a little more data? (laughs) <laughs> can't, can't you give me a little bit more to tell me if I need to care? Falls into that last used? bucket Has a little bit, accident? right? Visibility, right? That's all we can say? Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. I worry a little bit about that one being, you know, we're giving we're giving permission to our CSPM vendors to, you know, continue to write those dumb port checks where they have a rule for yeah. every single service, right? And you wind up with yeah. like a thousand rules that all they're doing is checking ports in your environment. And, you know, it's, we've got, it's we've got to get better binary. than that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. On, off. Yes, yep. no. Yep. Light switch kind of mentality. So then they go, he, he writes, lack of security standards for third-party integrations. I'm sorry. How is that a cloud misconfiguration? Yeah. It's not. It's a problem, but it's not a misconfiguration. It belongs it's, in another list somewhere. It's, yeah. It sure does. I mean, and look, this... You know what, Patrick? As long as I've been in this business and they and, and, and we standardized on TCP/IP, this has been an issue, particularly in the world of security. Yes. You know, this whole notion of standardization, but 
the difficulty I I think is there's so much innovation that you you know you you can't plan for and I don't want to have to do something to integrate with others if it might stymie something I might do for sure uh, I, for sure. I just I, I I think that you know the fact is we could agree on um, output of data we could agree on uh, tags and and descriptions um, but um, you know that integration. I think this is one of the reasons why vendor consolidation is such a big deal right now. Is because it's difficult to yes. integrate a whole bunch of different vendors. It products. is. It is, and that point is definitely Solar Winds inspired. You know, it, it, it oozes that for sure, and it's well intentioned. But you know, there, there there's a lot of trust that has to be there, right? Because what are you going to yeah. do? You're going to audit. You're going to audit your third parties entire security design no you're going to send them a giant questionnaire they're going to respond to it you're going to have your basic technical checks and there's unfortunately there's a lot of faith that has to be has to be present there right there just is that's right yeah that's right and it's why they have slas um you know i mean it's 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 why you go through all of those checks and then you still have a contract that says okay you're going to deliver this for me yes this is what you said you can do yeah um so uh, here again, I, I failure to establish a security baseline for cloud development, misconfiguration, best practice. Yeah, you know, that's a best practice for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it certainly is not a misconfiguration. Unnecessary changes to cloud vendor defaults. I found this one interesting, Patrick, because I recall, you know, it used to be. Hey, you can't trust the cloud vendors to appropriately and properly pre-configure everything. Their default settings are very likely not right. And right. the one that was such a big one was the proverbial S3 unencrypted. That's right. And I think it's reverse now, right? So, so you have to go in and physically say, no, I don't want it uh, encrypted. But this is arguing that Every major cloud service provider uses default configurations that set to private. That's, I mean, That's it just true. is so broad. It's, it's so like broad it, brush. And, it, <laughs> and it's it, bad. Exactly. It's bad advice, right? It, like, yes. you're right. If you go look at S3 as a particular example, then then this author is absolutely right. They've, they've not all these kinds of controls around it to make sure you don't absentmindedly send it to public. Yet, right. you still have a set of default security groups in every region with wide open rules that are easy to yep. attach to resources. That's not private by default at all, right? <laughs> I'm not arguing exactly. it's, a, it's it's even a bad design, but it's not what this author suggests. So, yeah, it's it's exactly. it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And and I point this out, you know, and here again, development team has not set the proper security controls. Here again, not a misconfiguration a best practice, yes. uh, 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 an approach to how you should look at. Um, but my point to this and my comment to Steve, if you're listening, is, man, people are looking to you for guidance and recommendation. People are looking to SC Media and other rags uh, for help. And we can't take them wandering through the mulberry bush. You know, we need to you know, have accurate headlines that associate and tie with the content and uh, a construct of the article. Yeah. I mean, because I didn't point it out, but, you know, he goes off, you know, right here about uh, mobile developers and personal data more than, a, I mean, I'm not sure where, 
what it had to do with, uh, yeah. it, it just seemed to be kind of an all-inclusive vegetable soup. Uh, yeah. But but for me, um, I thought we're not doing we're not doing a real service uh, for for our readers. You know, yeah. when when we take them on that kind of walk. So. I, I agree. And there's not that there were bad ideas in there. There's probably every point could have been its own article, right? But if you're going to say, hey, here's five, we know what cloud misconfiguration is supposed to mean. That's a standard, right? Yep. I've got yep. things configured wrong. How they got there, who knows? But that's, you know, that clearly wasn't that article. However, yep. um, talking mm. about cloud configuration or misconfigurations i found this you know you shared some news last week about just how big this cloud and cloud security market kind of is and how quickly it's growing and you know you and i were were lucky enough to be involved in the foundation of kind of the cspm market so i'm always keen on when i see titles like this it seems to be growing quickly um you know this report seems to think it's going to be worth almost nine billion dollars in a few short years that you know it's hard to believe there's gonna be that much spending in the cspm market but you know, we see by then we already see a lot of consolidation. We saw all these CSPM vendors go out and buy parts of the solution they didn't have yet. I don't think really any of them developed them in house, right? They they developed something and then they maybe bought the parts around it. And, you know, they're all rushing to become this really wide platform. So perhaps, you know, perhaps that number is, uh, isn't too far off, but I found it really interesting for sure that, you know, that it, that it's growing that quickly. Leading, uh, CSPM vendors. But what I think is interesting, and I'm trying to think of a good analogy, because it seems like everybody and their brother has a CSPM, right? I mean, the number of entrants into the space uh, is really pretty remarkable. And I For think sure. that speaks to um, that speaks to the size of the market and and, and uh, that the fact is there'll there'll probably be a lot of players uh, that are second rate but meet a need for a particular niche or market size for sure. right yeah for sure and i find this really really interesting because there's this trend of of um security vendors cspm vendors to uh acquire or build functionality but now i also see a ton of startups fractioning off solving problems that the CSPM vendors aren't, like deep IAM analytics or deep uh, uh, data security, right? And um, the CSPM vendors kind of solve a, a higher level sort of generic problem. So I find it really interesting. They're on this acquisition spree, but then I find now especially a ton of startups trying to solve the problems where they find gaps in CSPM solutions. So it'll be, you know, maybe yeah. in maybe in about this time we'll see this this uh, second generation of this wave of acquisitions happen, right? And and these platforms mm-hmm. widen even more. We'll see. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it reminds me of the way the Earth. You know, the scientists believe the Earth and continents and uh, bodies of land shifted and moved and. You know, restructured and reconnected, and I mean, it's. I find it fascinating. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, the the last thing, and I have two links that I want to cover here that I thought was interesting this week was, you know, that a large number of our software code bases, and and this article talks about it in the context of open source software, contain mm-hmm. at least one software vulnerability. At least one, I mean, n- n- nobody contains only one, right? <laughs> um, but I found this really, really interesting um, 
there's this struggle from a from a, an IT manager side, you know, to use to to patch as as current as we can, but then there's pushback from those who run applications that they have dependencies and they can't write. So, kind of as I read this, I also read the fact that Microsoft has sort of made the choice in in the next generation of Windows 10 and and for sure Windows 11, they're going to patch themselves. So they're going to mm-hmm. take the user out of that process, right? And, mm-hmm. and there's, I'm sure there's going to be ways to configure them like they work today. But the goal is going to be take the user out of the process. We can't, we can't do this in the data center. We can't mm-hmm. do this in the public cloud on server infrastructure, right? We, we depend on version levels staying relatively standard until we can do kind of testing, right? We can't, we can't afford downtime that a single desktop user can for sure. But you know, I think this is probably a sign of the times. So I'm curious, you know, uh, enterprises, uh, large organizations, you know, they have very strict and tight control management, change management. Uh, Oftentimes they've got applications that only work with this version and a new version or a new update is going to break it. I'm curious, uh, today enterprises have the control over that process right yeah they're the ones that push the updates they're the one that say okay i want everyone to get this latest update i don't right. want them to get this update um you know things tools like kanji i think is uh you know one of the tools that uh, um checkpoint uses mm-hmm. right that is all about controlling and pushing to you you know the version of the browser i want you to use the version right. of of zoom i want you to use the version of and so i find this very interesting and i'll be curious how much latitude or capability will be offered to the to the enterprise to still kind of corral control throttle manage uh that or if it's going to be you know hey if you want this os you're going to have this option Oh, I expect, yeah, I agree. I expect in the short term they'll have all the control they have now. You know, in the in the medium term, who knows? I guess it depends how big the problem becomes. You know, and and how, how big of a heavy handed solution you know outweighs the outweighs the actual sort of problem. So we'll we'll see. I know from a yeah. you know fr- from a us supporting our family perspective. Boy, I'd love it if all the machines patched themselves. Let me tell you. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> my god, when I look at my wife's machine, I'm telling you it's like oh my god, when's the last time you updated the OS? I know. I, know. What? So, I mean that that's who you- this is going to help. Right, it is. Yep, that's at right. the cost and, of and, potentially and having a little bit of incompatibility, but hopefully, hopefully yeah. the auto push is on on a very gentle setting where you know yeah. you, uh, there, there's a little bit more testing for compatibility done. But you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, and you know, let's face it, man. Twenty years ago, the majority was those that self-assign an IP address that you know had no problem self-configuring, uh, you know, that wasn't a big deal. And, and as uh, uh, the growth of the user population uh, took off and the ease uh, of access and use with DHCP and all the other uh, capabilities to automate the process, you know, that teeter-totter shifted 
from, and I used to have a presentation that showed that, you know, it was the 80, 20 rule was 80% were uber technical and 20% were the knots. And maybe it was even 90, 10, right? That's and right. now it's the other way, Absolutely right? Absolutely, You know, far and away, the minority know even uh, what bind is as it relates to DNS. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. people that we're hiring and names won't be mentioned, but, you know, I just was talking with a couple of them. I, Do you know what bind is? Mm-hmm. Do you know what DNS is? Well, sort of, you know. Yeah, yeah. That I find remarkable, but it just shows uh, that's not where the growth of the user base is. Yes. The growth of the For user sure. base is people that see it as a tool. Yeah. I need a screwdriver. That's right. right? The promise of this tech for forever, right, is the, the, the every user, right? We're there. But yeah, now we've got yeah. all these new challenges of how do we keep them safe? How do we keep them secure? How do we protect them against not only everyone else but themselves? So, yeah, it's no small feat. Yeah. And what's different, too, is, you know, a telephone in its early incarnation had just, what, four wires? I mean, really yeah. basic communications. Yeah. And despite getting additional wires to do things like call waiting and caller ID and all this other stuff, I mean, it was the same thing. Right. The sophistication and complication didn't uh, increase in, in terms of that functionality. When you contrast that with computers, microprocessors, uh, what's going on, you know, at that level on the tech side, completely opposite. Right. Yes. And, and, and that adds, you know, it just makes the dynamic um crazy when you think about uh, how much more there is underneath the hood yeah compared to four wires and that's how you you know could uh, make a phone call that's right um, that's right kind of crazy we exponentially grew yep yeah gosh we've had a great news segment today i always like talking about this stuff i think you provide such a keen insight and i really mean that i just think it really is helpful so uh, and hey, no bash on my buddies at Gigamon, man. I love you, but um, let's raise it up a notch on the Captain Obvious stuff, okay? So hey, we got to get to our guest. Yes, we do. Jazz, let's go meet who we're going to have on a program today. Eric, hi. hi. Hello. Hi, guys. Welcome. Thanks for being here. No worries. How's everybody doing today? Good. So, a couple of things. A, this is the new Talking Cloud, and it's with video, and so thanks very much for being a part of it. We're excited. Two, we're already rolling, and we're live, uh, although we're not streaming anywhere, so... uh, um, but we're just taking on a little bit of a different format uh, with the new program. It'll have some various different segments. Then we're going to have our guest. Uh, and from now on, I'll do a better job informing them that you'll be walking on to stage. Uh, <laughs> and, and well, I, read a, your, I read your stuff, your preamble, so I was prepared for it. And I actually like the format. Okay. Just, just, uh, I, awesome. So it's pretty cool. 
Good, 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 good. Well, uh, I want to make sure I have it correct. Kedrosky. You got it. Okay, perfect. Eric's the first name, obviously. Siso for Sunray. Do you say Sunray, Sunray? How do you Sun- pronounce it? Sunray. Sunray. Okay, I missed it. But Sunray. I got it. Sunray Security. Interesting um, and interesting fact if you wanted to throw it in it's uh irish gaelic for data so the company actually means data security and our ceo is irish so aha so there's a little story well you'll be pleased to know that you have a countryman joining you patrick is in alberta and so he (laughs) is also in canada and I'm over in the Pacific Northwest, so we're definitely doing a good job stretching coast to coast here. There we go. So, hey, I, look, at this is really just what the title is, Eric. It's Talking Cloud. And what I generally do is I like to throw back to my guests, you know, the opportunity to kind of just talk about yourself, how you got to where you are, whatever, however you want to push the boat from the dock, so to speak. And then we'll just dive in. Patrick, uh, long in the tooth in cloud and cloud native since like 2013. Uh, so definitely, you know, you can go as deep as you want. Um, and then I'd love to understand your role within a cloud security vendor and how that differs if it does. Yeah, cool. Okay. How do you want to, how do you want to get rolling? Kick it off. Tell me about yourself and how you paddled up the river to where you are today. Or floated or, or, or floated down, right? I mean, whichever way it happened to be for you. That's right. That's right. I think I think paddling up the river, or really what I've said a bunch of times, is is bushwhacking. Um, you know, I, uh, I I started in I'm a computer engineer by schooling, and I actually was fortunate enough to start in the uh, the information security industry about 20 years ago, right out of mm. uh, engineering school. Mm. And you know, at that time, it looked it looked vastly different than it was today. And it certainly, as I like to say, before it was ever cool and talked about. Um, I found myself in that world. And so I kind of came up the chain through the, uh, the SecOps side of things. Um, you know, one of my big things was, uh, you know, as an analyst to start and then running uh, like a global CSERT team for a very, very large uh, multinational telecommunications company where, um, you know, before there were tools in the market or really good tools in the market, we had to do it all ourselves. Mm. You know, we had to build mm. the tools to detect the things. We had to build the tools that, that, shut down things, you know, we had to clean up stuff ourselves manually, Um, you know, and that really taught me from the start, this, this hands-on sort of approach to security and really understanding uh, what it is we were trying to protect and then figuring out how to build tools to protect it. Mm. And then sort of doing the information, um, sort of the incident management uh, type of roles. Like I said, I was responsible for our CSER team globally. Um, I went through some pretty nasty situations where, you know, we had incidents that would last into, you know, 36 hours straight of just literally being up. Um, 
And that really gave me a view to sort of the, the, the threat landscape that was out there. I mean, there's a lot of theory. I became a CISSP at the time, and there's, there was theory in that. But this is really where your, your theory went out the window and it was put into practice. And so, you know, I learned a lot about incident management, which is a, which is a, huge, a huge skill to learn. Um, but I also learned a lot about the threat landscape and, you know, just because there's a book or a guru that says this is how it happens when you're dealing with it yourself, yeah. um, you know, it's a, it's a different story. Um, and then, so I just kind of continued on that route in security. And I, I did some time in product management to sort of learn the customer side of security. Cause I was always really interested in that. And I was fortunate enough to do some consulting with that company as well. Um, and got into the product side, which is really fun and really interesting to learn, to learn that. How do the, the customers, if I'm the, if I was the customer, um, you know, helping other customers solve their problems. And, and so that was really super cool to get, to get that uh, aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just sort of continued on, on the path in security. And then finally, you know, kind of became leading a security team and infosec manager. And instead of being the person with hands on keyboard, I was responsible for building teams and building programs. Um, which again was sort of another step in, in, in on the route to CISO, you know, how do you do this? How do you protect a company? What's the right strategy to use? What are the right controls to put in place? There's a ton of information out there. And, and this is what we'll get to talking about the cloud. There's a whole bunch of information out there, but it's how do you choose the right things that are relevant to you? And so um, I learned a lot, a lot there. And then by chance, and it was just sort of a, a risk I took, I went and did some M&A for a while. So I worked and went and worked with a, with a strategy team, an M&A team. And we did a deal. We bought a company and we sold the company. We did a bunch of stuff. Um, but really what that made me realize is that information security wasn't and still really isn't part of the due diligence process mm. when we do M&A. So when they run a due diligence, they look at financials and look at risk, yeah. not security risk. And I remember one of the deals we did, I was like, hey, where's the information security due diligence? And I was friends with the chief legal officer at this company. And he's like, that's a good point. And we did it. And the risks we actually found in the business that we were purchasing could have cost us millions of dollars. Saved if you. We, if we didn't know about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's like, a risk. That's say- a risk burning opportunity. Uh, I mean, come on, you know it. And I know it, right? You go back, you present that as a huge risk. I'm going to bail. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And all of a sudden you just saved yourself some money, right? Not saying it's not legit, well, it but that's kind of the, yeah. the dynamic. Well, I mean, and nowadays, nowadays, you know, when you most, co- all companies have technology. And so, the purpose of doing that process when you're when you're in the buying side or whether you're an investor in it, an equity investor or whatever yep. is am i getting what i'm paying for and it's like yeah. like you buy a car well you're going to make sure that the engine's running and you're going to make sure that the brakes are working and and if it doesn't you're going to say i don't want this or i'm going to pay a lot less and anyway so that that's what i learned there um, i'll tell you something that's kind of interesting and then What's that? Uh, uh, so one of the things that we've recently introduced uh, as we go through RFPs with companies uh, is looking at the performance of the competitors and uh, ourselves with regards to number of CVEs, uh, how long is it? How long did they drag around? Uh, how quickly were they fixed and, and absolved? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's remarkable how that, too, is 
never in the criteria, but you would think yeah. is pretty critical. So I couldn't agree with you more, Eric. Yeah. Well, I use a statistic a lot now when talking about data in the cloud, but you know, I, I the Economist said it a couple of years ago how data is now the most expensive commodity in the world, and that was a couple of years ago. And so, if most companies are run with data, and most companies' most valuable thing is data, why are most companies not treating it the same way as like a tangible asset? Like, if you had gold bars or your secret formula for your whatever, you guarantee that that tangible asset is kept very secure. But yet we're still trying to struggle with the whole keeping the data secure. Um, and sort of through those roles, that's sort of what I learned along the way. And then came the cloud. Um, I was at a company at the time that was very much in the data center. Um, and we had a multi, like a multi-million dollar, like a $12 million a year infrastructure cost in a, in a data center. Mm-hmm. And you know, the smart individual who worked for me there, who works for me now still, uh, you know, basically came to me and said, hey, boss, um, if we go to this Amazon cloud thing that we've been reading a lot about, <laughs> um, we can save 86% of the cost. So 86% of $12 million a year bill. I mean, I went to my CFO, who was my boss, and I laughed because I've never, <laughs> I've never seen a CFO say yes so fast in my life, right? Right. Um, and we moved to the cloud. And within within three months, that company was in the cloud and, and saving those costs. But man, did the world ever flip on its head. You know, once once we started moving out of the data center where we had a great, you know, I had 15 years at the time or whatever at the time, a lot of time in the in the data center, we knew everything. We knew the controls. We knew how to protect stuff. We knew the gear. And then along came the cloud and you realize, wait a minute, your, your perimeter is kind of gone. You, you don't really have a perimeter anymore in the traditional sense. You can't just build a network or a bunch of little networks and put some security mm-hmm. gear in between where the data flows in and out, and that's your security stack, and that's how you monitor and block everything. You know, Data transfers in, in the clouds, what I like to call it the cloud level. So at that time, there wasn't even firewalls. So if I was transferring data from one data store to another data store across the country, that wasn't happening at the internet level where I could put a fancy next generation firewall. That was happening at the cloud level. And mm. that was being done via an API call. And so you begin to realize that that's sort of like, yeah, the fundamentals of information security are still there, but the cloud flipped it all in its head and we and we had to start relearning or or, or like when I came out of school in the early days when there wasn't a lot of tooling in the InfoSec space how to do this and you had to learn about the clouds and about the IAM models and the data models and all that stuff to start them thinking how do we put controls around this and so this is where I find myself now working for an organization that that builds a platform to do just that and how involved are you Eric with the product and development as a CISO you think it's internally focused for the organization are you straddling that fence Talk a little bit about that. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I've got my internal CISO duties, which is basically eating our own dog food and using our own product as, as part mm-hmm. of my security suite of tools. Um, but because of my experience in the area, I spend a lot of time uh, talking to customers, talking to other CISOs in the industry, um, you know, in a very consultative role a lot of the times is, is 
you know, basically I've been where you are. I've seen the problem that you're trying to solve and I try to help them educate them for one, because that's a huge part of the role right now is yeah. educating uh, the CISOs on the journey that I was on, helping them understand where they are and then helping them solve problems. And then I bring that back into the, into the product to say, listen, I'm working with this, you know, large multinational FI financial institution that's got this problem and they got to protect this data in this way, you know, you know, how can we help them? How can we extend our platform to do this better or to, to do it in, in a, in a way that they, they, they need. So why don't you talk a little bit about the platform? I mean, I was looking through on the website and, you know, thank you Gartner because, you know, we're coming up with, you know, it's C, CNAP and CSPM and, and SIM or Kim or whatever you want to call her. And, uh, uh, so it's all mumbled and jumbled. Uh, clearly, which is clear evidence that this is not settled out. It's fast moving water. There, uh, there's a continuing shift and change. Uh, but nonetheless, you guys are building solutions. So talk a little bit about them. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, first I'd like to define the problem. And, and as we've kind of talked about okay. already, the problem is this, is that modern application development in the cloud has kind of eviscerated your traditional security controls. And so it's created unique risks that those old tools definitely can't handle and can't see. And, and that's really making CISOs, all of us, feel frustrated and also feel a bit exposed. You know, we know there's problems, but we're not, you know, we know we're not solving the problems or even seeing some of the problems. And so what Sunray helps to do is, is see everything across, not just within a cloud, but across all of your clouds. So that mm -hmm. could be your platform risks. You know, CSPM is the acronym, like you like to say, and that I, I coined, you know, securing your foundation. It helps you see and inventory all of your identities <laughs> in the cloud. And, you know, we all know about your traditional people identities, Eric, Grant, Patrick, Bob, Jane, whatever. And that was a very big thing in the data center. But yeah. in the cloud, you have these non-person identities. So roles and service principles and serverless functions and virtual machines that have identities. And all these things are called everything. And yeah. so Sunry sees all of that in the identity space. And that's great. And it inventories it. But what you really need to know is what can those things actually do? What permissions do those identities have? And mm -hmm. for a good example is, you know, a lot of things only see like a level deep. Oh, Eric and Grant are in this group, and that gives them these set of permissions by looking at that group, and they're fine. When in actuality, what tends to happen in the cloud is you get these permission chains that happen. And so Eric and Grant might be in that group, but maybe someone misconfigured it where there's a, a permission that allows Eric and Grant now to assume an AWS role or a service principle, and that allows us to do something else. Maybe now acting as that non-person identity, we can assume another role into another account. So what we see a lot of is when organizations think that the developer Eric is locked down a developer account, the actual identity chain says that the user Eric can actually hop a bunch of roles, which which we like to call lateral movement, you know, in the yep. cloud using identities to yep. get to the most sensitive data. And there's a very notable breach of an FI a bunch of years ago where this was the main problem. You know, an yep. attacker got a hold of identity that gave them access to all of their sensitive data and then transferred it out the window. So from the identity perspective, that's what Sunry does. And then lastly, from a data perspective, 
you know, the biggest thing I, I ask CISOs now when I talk to them is I say, well, do you know where all of your data is? And sure enough, somebody comes up with an architecture diagram or gets up on a whiteboard and, and draws out their, their data flow diagram for me. And I say, well, that's great, but that's where your data is supposed to be. Do you know where it actually is right now? And then, then you tend to get these, these sort of head scratching and blank looks. So what Sunry helps, helps to do is tell you where all your data is in the cloud. So if you have a policy, which most of us do, or if you don't, you should have, that says no production data, no sensitive data is allowed to leave production or this region or whatever, well, you need to verify that, that there is no, none of that data sitting in a developer account or exposed to the internet somewhere. So we help you see that. And then we calculate, you know, what are the identities that can access that data? So, okay, I know where my data is. I know what it is. It's PII, it's health records, it's whatever. That's great. But can Patrick access that data? And should Patrick access that data? Can Grant access that data? And if he shouldn't, we need to drive that to least privilege. So we, so we basically connect all the dots to help uncover those toxic relationships. And so that's great. We're raising problems and, and every security person is going to go, great, I've got more problems. But another really important thing, and this, this is what I'm passionate about because it comes from my background being an incident responder, being a SecOps person, is how the heck do you deal with those problems? It's great right. to see them. What's it's next? great to raise them. But how do you deal with them? And so what mm -hmm. the platform helps you do is not only prioritize them based on criticality, risk, right? Measure your risk. But again, in the cloud, in the cloud world, you know, we've got DevOps teams doing a lot of the work. So instead of burying a cloud team in the problems or instead of burying in, uh, a SecOps team in the problems, you actually send the problem to the group that created the problem. So if we've got Grant here building an application and we've got Patrick here building an application and you guys deviate from the security controls, well, those things get found out. And then the alert, the ticket, the whatever actually goes to Grant's team and actually goes to Patrick's team because it's their responsibility to fix, not, not the security persons. Right. And then last but not least, again, being coming from the operations world, okay, now you, Grant, have a bunch of things to fix. Well, why don't we use the cloud for what it's really worth, that why all these organizations are going to the cloud? You can do so much better security in the cloud using cloud-native APIs and tooling. So basically, we, we provide the platform provides a way to which to automate the fixing of the problems. So Sunry sees the problems, connects the dots to find the risks, gets the problems to the right teams, and then enables the, the teams to fix those problems, as I like to say, at the speed and the scale of the cloud, using the cloud. And so that's what that's what Sunry does. So you mentioned... That, that's really interesting. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Grant. No, I'm going to just ask one question, and then, Patrick, by all means, dive in. But you mentioned we know what the data is. So how do you how, do you do data classification yourself? Are you hooking yep. into we data do, classification? Yes. So you're actually looking inside that repository and seeing yep. the type of data that it is. Got it. Exactly. As I like to say, we, we answer the question, where is my data? But as we all know, not all data is created equal. Yeah. As a CISO, I've got to put my time and my resources which are, and my finances, which are both all, all three of them are limited to protecting the most important stuff. Yeah. So I have to not only know where all my data is, but I have to say, wait a minute, that data right there, those two buckets or those storage accounts or databases, they actually hold our most sensitive data. Sure. So we have a classification engine that actually goes in and will classify um, the data based on well-known 
data algorithms, or you can actually train our classification engine to look for uh, specific data that, that might be proprietary to you. And agent? Or Agentless. So no agents. Uh, yep. Okay. Because Traffic. it's all done with cloud-native APIs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, Eric, I was interested in the in the last part of that sort of journey. You talked about how, how it was, um, you know, you're able to find deviations in uh, identities uh, and not just kind of first level ones, right? I, I was sort of lucky enough to be involved in the in the birth of the CSPM, and I think of that as Gen One, where we did a bunch of really useful, but especially by now, sort of trivial measurements around identity. You're talking about, you know, direct permissions, group permissions, even what can I do if I can assume a role, right? What sort of uh, uh, big lateral movement, as you coined it, possibilities through IAM do I have? Um, that all sounds wonderful. And then at the end, you know, what is that last last mile? Is there some automation capability to sort of fix this? Is there some, talk to me about what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So like what we're talking about with the identity chains, you know, we call it, you know, finding the effective permissions or the end to end permissions. So we have a patented technology that actually goes in the cloud and computes the effective permission for every single identity that you have. So can Patrick through a bunch of lateral movements actually access the most sensitive data? And we show you the path and we show you the policies where that happens. So that's how we do that. And we calculate that called we call them effective permissions or end to end permissions. When it comes to the automation, again, organizations move to the cloud because of this. That's why apps get to the cloud faster. That's why people build quickly. That's why everybody loves the cloud. So in the security space, we're sitting here going, guys, we got to use the cloud as security people to solve our problems. So what we enable the, the organizations to do is really break up their cloud sort of contextually. And the best example I generally give is application-based. One of my large financial customers does this. They have a whole bunch of applications in the cloud. And so they've broken it up in, in Sunry to say, here's the, uh, the, the, the non-prod and here's the prod. When the prod reaches secure, it can get promoted to the cloud. And then when it's in the cloud, it's being monitored and a deviation from their controls, whether they built them in or whether they use ours out of the box happens, that ticket, as we call it, would go to that team. And so that team can choose to manually fix the problem if they want, but who wants to do that? Because it's probably not just what somewhere once, it's probably somewhere a bunch of times. What it, we enable them to do using what we call intelligent workflows is then to, to escalate those to say an automation scheme. So if my, myself as a CISO says, you know, we should have no data store put on the internet ever, unless it's an exception. So I have something monitoring that 24 seven by 365 and oopsie, somebody put an S3 bucket on the internet, that ticket would fire. It doesn't even go to a person. It goes right to the bot. The bot goes out and does a cloud native call and says, delete bucket. And that bucket gets deleted. And that automation happens just by itself. So you, again, free up the teams that are still responsible for solving the problems by allowing them to automate the solutions. And when it comes to identities, we can do the same thing. You know, we can find that Patrick has access to all of our data in our Microsoft SQL store, even across cloud from Amazon through GCP all the way to Azure. We can calculate that. But what we can also do is, since we know where the problems occur, we can run automation that, that cleans up the policies. And we have a feature that actually recommends the least effective policy that you can run based on the actions that we see Patrick doing. 
Um, and you can automatically implement those. So you have a, a bot that goes out and goes, fix this policy with the least privilege, fix this policy, fix this policy. And at the end of it, Patrick no longer has access to that. And now he's at, at least privilege. So that's kind of what we can do. Yeah, it sounds like you have a, a, a decent intermediate step, right? Because I can imagine as these identity chains get really complex, there, there might have to be a little bit of judgment in terms of what, you know, what one should have and what one shouldn't, right? Uh, yeah. M- the more trivial ones I would think would be kind of uh, easier, absolutely judged, but maybe the more complex ones might take that, well, yes or no. And then once, you know, once you have somebody in the know that says yes or no, they can sort of trip the, the appropriate automation then. Exactly. And, and we see a lot of that with, with large, like, you know, the automation part is great, and I agree with you. It's cleaning up a lot of the dead wood. It's cleaning up a lot of the low-hanging fruit. Um, sure. But you're right. And so we're – because we use graphing technology, we can visualize the identity chains, and that's really what a lot of our, our more sophisticated customers or with these really complex identity chains use it for is they can actually look at the chain and say, wow, there's six steps here. What do we need to fix here? What do we need to fix here? What do we need to fix mm-hmm. here? And you can, they can visualize it. And like I said, we actually can recommend least privilege as well because we see all the actions that are happening. So if Patrick never used 99 of the 100 actions that he has permission to do, our least policy engine says to them, well, your policy should might want to look like this. And we actually sure. give them a recommendation that they can then you know, take themselves and, and implement if they want to. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I think you're seeing, <clears throat> we're certainly seeing more and more uh, ML, uh, you know, more and more AI, you know, the data samples are enormous. Uh, it, you know, that's changing the game significantly. But I think what's interesting is the comment you made, uh, Patrick, is that, you know, closer we get to the tip of that pencil, you know, that's when it's still uh, kind of subject to a human who knows, right? I mean, that's uh, it. I, my visual is, you know, the guy who's sitting on the nose of a huge missile. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. I don't know why, but I mean, it's like you, you still have to have somebody. Uh, uh, we're not at the point where we, we can let these things go and they're always right, right? Right. That's a good way to say they're always right. Right. There is a class of problem we can sort of let go, but it's still fairly trivial, right? Uh, But, but, I mean, there's two kind of problems I see. If, If you really are looking for full automation, no human in the chain, then, right, as a user of a service like Sunry or, or any other third-party security service, right, I have to be able to express what I'm looking for with a lot of specificity, right? This tag, this geo, this region of AWS, whatever, right? When you see this condition, I need more than something kind of off the shelf, right? As a user, if, if I'm going to attach some auto remediation to it, I really have to have the confidence there will be zero false positives, right? Any kind of significant one, right? So as a, right. as a, as a user of these kinds of services and as somebody who's built them i think of that a lot right how do we how do we get out of the business of making assumptions for our users and, and make them feel comfortable that they can express kind of whatever they want yeah and it's yeah, i've got a great i've got a great story on that um that one as well because i agree with you because i've been there i've you know i'm also responsible for that and and as we know with any product it's like okay that does 80 percent of what i need how do i get the right. rest of what i need and so right. i 
this very, very large financial that I worked with, um, they have their own set of controls for the cloud. And they said, Sunry, you've got a great set of controls, but guess what? We actually want to implement as well our own controls. Can you do that? And because we're built on a gra- you know, graphing, graph database technology, we can build in those controls. So we actually built in all of their controls. There was over 100 custom controls that we built in that resulted in like the base of everything we do is a search. And that's where you get very, very granular and you can do relations between objects. So you can get very, 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 very detailed. And that resulted in about three or 400 unique searches that we built in for them. And then they took those, like you said, through a vetting process of their own company and made sure there were no false positives and then tuned them. But then once they were done doing that, they actually had their controls built into the cloud which is something they could never actually do in their data center. So they took their controls from the data center and said, yeah. how do we cloudify these? But they can never actually automatically audit them. And now they put in the cloud. And for them, their whole their whole push was getting applications to the cloud, getting their first data into the cloud. And, you know, the statistic I like to say around that is, is that, you know, it used to take a minimum of two FTEs. Now we're talking, you know, senior security auditors, not junior staff. So two senior mm-hmm. security staff, two of them, a minimum of two weeks for every single application to audit. And then after they've implemented the controls just to check for this stuff, and if it's green, basically promote to prod, they can mm-hmm. do it in 24 hours. And so, yeah. you know, that's a great example of building wow. controls with, with high specificity and then how it's helping organizations do security at the speed and the scale of the cloud. And, and that's why I love, whether it being a CISO consuming the cloud or, or helping organizations understand how to do this, because there's just such an untapped amount of power there that I think yeah. is, is going to help security teams uh, uh, immensely as they go on this journey. I liken that story to one I heard about, you know, the ability and accuracy of computers versus humans with detecting uh, abnormal uh, abnorm- abnormalities in a mammogram. Now, did a machine know how to find it all on its own? No. But with precision and rigor on the education, the accuracy of what you're teaching. Now we know, right? Multifold faster and more efficient and effective than a human. Uh, So, I mean, that's where it gets exciting for sure. When you, you start to see those types of things come to fruition and um, but it's interesting when we talk about automation, and Eric, I'm curious what you think, Patrick, chime in. As much as we hear about it, as much as every program now is saying, hey, Eric, I analyzed your program and you really should use this code for least privilege. There's, I don't know many that are flipping that switch to let it go. Yeah. Uh, you know, truly allowing the automation uh, to go, I guess, to your point, Patrick. But will we ever get there? Yeah, I think I mean, so. Yeah. Sorry, I think, Patrick, yeah, I think on. so, too. I, I, no, I'll, I'll definitely let you speak, Eric. I think, I think the, the one thing I'd say to that is I think many are dabbling, right? I, I agree. They're not... 
they're not using this full stop in production. But I think many see the writing on the wall and they're like, geez, if if I'm automating provisioning and I'm automating deprovisioning, why why aren't I automating, you know, the, the, the correction, right? And and some of us have chosen a philosophy where we try not to correct in production. We tear things down. We fix it in the pipeline. We republish, right? We've some of us have tried to stick to that philosophy, but other others still, and, and this is probably the vast majority of us to your point, Grant still fix things in production. Right. And so if we're automating everything else, I, I think there is an appetite to, to dabble, but I think to the point of the conversation we just had, I think the results are underwhelming, right? Especially in tools mm -hmm. where you can't change those assumptions, where there is no ability to customize, even like the assumptions around what makes a, a, a an alert a high severity, right? Yeah. Geez, we hear so much about, I, I don't want to use seven different uh, you know cloud security products. And, and the I think as a practitioner, the, the largest reason is every single one, you know, decides what's high severity on its own and none of them share, you know, that context between each other. It, you know, it's kind of a mess. So, yeah, I think I think there's an appetite. I just think so far our, our ability as as sort of operators of of this technology is uh, to, to get the exact right results is is uh, limited at best mm. on a grand scale. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I think, you know, just as we're all learning, you know, we're all making the transition to the cloud world. And again, we see it in the DevOps world, as Patrick said, how do you think they're deploying code? How do you think they're deploying infrastructure? It's all automation. So yeah. we're deploying the problems with automation, right? Yeah. And I think in the security space, we've kind of got this once bitten, twice shy sort of approach where back in the data center, when we tried to use automation, maybe there was a time we screwed up and it was really hard to unwind that problem because it was complex. And so, you know, what I say to security mm -hmm. practitioners and CISOs now is, is that you're doing, like I just said, you're, you're developing with automation, you're releasing with automation, you're building mm -hmm. with automation, you're, <laughs> you're actually creating many, many problems with automation, use the same automation that you're using, it's not a different product, it's not a different thing, use the same automation to fix your problems. And oh, by the way, yeah, like if you screw up, you can also fix it really quickly. You know, I can think of an example where a piece of automation kind of went sideways because someone screwed up and it deleted a whole bunch of S3 buckets with a whole bunch of data that probably shouldn't got deleted. But guess what? We got that data back like that because we were using the cloud tools to back it up and we restored that data before anybody even noticed. So I think it's part of the security practitioners just getting over that sort of innate fear of first using automation, but then worrying about making making a mistake and starting to realize is that, like, listen, 99% of the time, you're gonna solve your problems at speed and at scale with far less resources. And that one time that something does screw up, you're gonna use the same sort of tools in the cloud to fix that problem. And I've, I've yet to see a problem because of automation that, that wasn't solvable within a, within a reasonable amount of time. I mean, yes, you could probably pull an edge case where, you know, someone did something crazy and encrypted everything and you couldn't get it back. But those are like the edge cases that you'll hardly ever see, you know? And I think but, that's why. I think it's just a, a thing. No question. The resiliency in the cloud is, you know, nothing to compare. And I think, Patrick, you know, here's what I'm hearing, right? I'm, I'm hearing... Farm animals, farm animals, pets, 
farm animals, right? That we kind of have this, you know, to your point, Eric, that, that, you know, we're automating all these things, but then we, we kind of go back to old practices, once bitten, twice shy, what have you. Um, but to really get in the mindset of, of farm animals, you know, you're producing a product. And if anywhere along that pipeline, there's a flaw, you kill it, you send it back through the pipeline. It, because it can happen at the speed of cloud, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I do believe that will prevail. But I tell you, I think it's because old habits die hard, man. Yeah. And these guys and gals that have been managing and maintaining data centers and physical stuff, yeah. it's just hard to wrap their arms around all the way around this concept. I remember the first time I heard it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah, but For it's sure. brilliant. Well, you know, it, and, and to your point, it's not just old infrastructure. It's also how we build apps, right? If we're still building big monolithic apps, we can't replace a piece of it. Yeah. We can't, yeah. you know, we can't take take the risk engine down for a minute and have the inventory engine still work, right? Now that we're building apps out of microservices and ourselves building microservices, we can, right? But so yeah, that's a right. nuanced conversation where it's not just about security, it's about software development, it's not just about how we release software, it's about the philosophy, right? And so it all kind of fits together. In the most modern ways, this can be done. How many of us employ all the most modern techniques throughout software development and infrastructure? Very few of us, right? Yeah, and I think Grant made a really a really good point there. We've been talking around you know this whole conversation is, you know, I I was fortunate enough that it, after that one role where I took that company, we moved to the cloud. I landed as a CISO role in a company fully in the cloud, so I had to learn, and that was That's my right. main focus. However, ninety nine percent of the CISOs that I talked to have the job of still protecting their data centers yes, at right. the same time as wrapping their heads around the cloud. And yes, there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, uh, congruent that you can, that that's kind of the principles are the same. You have the cloud is a new world and you have to learn the new world and that takes time. And so I find a lot of CISOs are like, man, I wish I could do the cloud better because it's already gotten away from me. And I'm still trying to protect the data center over here. And I think that's a big crux of the problem. And, you know, what did I do? I took my smartest sysadmin, who, who's really, really smart, and I made him my cloud admin. Now, he figured it out, and, and, and you know, he's very, you know, <laughs> great in that way. But we're also seeing a lot of that happen is, like, we're taking our most trusted data center resources, and we're saying, ta-da, tomorrow you're now the new cloud guru. <laughs> well, nobody learns overnight. And so yeah. that's also part of the problem is that, you know, we're not getting the time or a lot of CISOs I talked to are not getting the time or more importantly, I think, given the time to actually learn more about the cloud and to build a, a cloud security practice properly to be able to all the wonderful things we're talking about. And that's why you see them using sort of old data center technologies and approaches in the cloud, hoping that they'll work. For yep, one, right. that's one reason. And the second one is because we've been talking about it for 20 years. Exactly. I mean, who hasn't been reporting on vulnerability scanning and AV scanning for 20 years? It's yeah. a language that CISOs are comfortable talking about. It's a language that executive teams are used to hearing. And if you report to the board, it's metrics that they're used to seeing. Yeah. And now mm -hmm. with the cloud, 
like sometimes who cares about the AV statistics? I've got yeah. Kubernetes and ephemeral machines. I don't have a, you know, I'm not saying this, I do, but like I know organizations that don't have AV on anything because nothing lasts longer than five minutes. Yeah. And so, so you're also Patrick, having to retrain yourself and yeah. I, I was just going to say Patrick and I, four years ago, authored a presentation and it had a quite a mouthful for a title i'll admit but mind you 2018 my ceo just told me we're moving to the our data center to the cloud cloud, what's the big deal so, so literally four years ago, we wrote this presentation on, you know, kind of this misconception that just because you've owned a sales boat with a one bedroom doesn't qualify you to sit in the bridge of, uh, you know, a cruise ship with uh, 500 yeah. rooms, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. it was just trying to put it, and the difference when you have a UI, AWS, that's designed for Fortune 1 and 1 billion. I mean, everybody. Yeah. That, too, has yeah. an impact, right? Um, and it was a really, it was a terrific no. presentation. We did it a lot. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but I think we were spot on. What were we going to say, Patrick? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I can't imagine you are um, in any way sort of outside the uh, the brain drain problem in Eastern Canada, Eric, right? I mean, if I was thinking about the ideal security team, I'd want some old school, right? I'd want some new school who've, who've, who really only know the new ways. I'd want a little bit in between, but it's that, it's that new school, uh, uh, deep experience that's really, really hard to hire for, right? So some of this is, is done pretty honestly. Some of it we, we, we do because we make really poor assumptions, but some of it is because it's really, really hard to find mature, skilled cloud native talent. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. It's about giving, I think I come back to it. It's, it's about, organizations need to understand that this is a fundamental shift. It's not like you're switching from a regular firewall to a next generation Mm. firewall where you can Mm. sort of kind of get up to speed pretty quickly. It's a fundamental shift, which needs relearning and organizations need to, to give time to this. And, you know, a joke I had with somebody last week about, about DevOps, and this might get me in trouble in the DevOps world is like, I'm actually looking for ops that can do dev because sometimes I get devs that can't do any ops. And that's where a lot of the problems happen. And so some of the best cloud people that I have, to Patrick's point, were sysadmins that were given the time to make the shift to the cloud. And they're some of my best cloud security people. And I ran cloud operations teams as well. There were some of my best cloud operations people because they understood operations. Mm -hmm. And now they understood the development side to do infrastructure as code. And, And so it's about organizations, to your point, Grant, doing this. And I mean... How many times have you guys probably heard the line from a senior executive? Well, we went to the cloud. We're secure, right? By going to the cloud, we're secure. I mean, I remember the first time I heard a very senior executive that is actually a very intelligent person say that. The internal conversation in my head, and right. trying not to let it show on my face, was was the great was a was a Herculean struggle. Are you like, out wow, of your like, Vulcan that mind? Can't be so wrong. <laughs> right? One more yeah, webinar nothing. about the shared responsibility model. Here we come, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah exactly. It's so, well, it's. Uh, I think it's remarkable how um, miss. 
understood it all is. And I'll give you the example I've recited many times. I think, Eric, you'll appreciate this. You know, we have on-premise mindset. They read about an ELB. So they go to the guy, Patrick, who's been managing their F5 load balancer, and he's now going to manage the ELB because, come on, it's just a load balancer, right? And there's a little bit... There's a little bit more than that <laughs> that's different between the two, yeah. right? But it's that yeah. notion that, yeah. oh, the same name? Must be, the, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Or trying to explain, like, I answer a lot of third-party, you know, risk questionnaires in my internal CISO role for, for customers. And, you know, how many times I have to explain why we don't have a firewall per se as part of some part of our platform or our infrastructure, you know, you got to get That's into right. network security groups and knackles and all these other things. And they, they 20, just want you to answer firewalls. the box. Yeah. Right? yeah. They just want you to answer yeah. the box. Yes. I've got a firewall and trying to explain like, so it's, it's that. And it's, and, I, and it comes right back to it. It's, it's, and I think the biggest thing for CISOs today is, is that, you know, what I'm seeing is the cloud environments are getting away from them. And then when they do either inherit them or get around to, or God forbid something happens and they have to take care of it, it's gotten away from them and, and they don't really know why. And so, you know, rightfully so, they, they use what they know and they scramble to put the controls in place that they know and they tune their VA scanners and they tune their AV and they sort of tune their, their stuff. And then they think they're good. And then they keep reporting on the same stuff that they reported in the data center where when yeah. we come back to the, the conversation about identities. Well, yeah. who really cares if I have AV on that box? You know what's sitting on that box? There's actually an identity sitting on that box that is the equivalent of S3 star that has access to all of my data in right. the most sensitive account. And oh, right. by the way, that box has a vulnerability on it that if someone gets on it, they're not going to load malware on that box. They're going to steal the identity and then automatically use the identity, go grab the data and transfer it out the window. That's what's going to happen. So you're also, CISOs are kind of at this false sense of security until the day comes, God forbid, that something happens and and someone says to them, well, you told us for the last two years that we were good. Yeah. What happened? You know, and there's this, there's this visibility that uh, into the real risks that are happening in the cloud that I think a lot of CISOs are, are, are missing. And, and, to be honest, it's an education thing. And I think that, that, you know, this is a big part of what I do is to help CISOs understand. Listen, number one, I made the same mistake and I learned, and now I'm trying to help, help you guys learn. Here's actually the top one, two, three priorities that you need to be thinking about, you know, maybe before you think about these other ones that were more traditional controls. Yeah. Well, and the one thing we know for sure is, you know, this river, called the cloud, right? I mean, it's screaming, man. It's moving. There's fast water. There's rapids. It's very turgid. uh, And and we are far from the end of our journey in cloud, cloud native and the evolution. It's super exciting. It's why I've said, and I know Patrick has heard me before, absolutely one of the greatest things about this industry is it doesn't matter when you're getting in, you're getting in at the beginning of something. 
and uh, you know it's yeah. it's it's super super exciting. Well, Eric, out of appreciation and respect for your time, I certainly don't want to keep you uh, beyond your commitment, but want to thank you very very much for thoughtful conversation, keen insights. It was really great talking with you. Thank you very much. Awesome. I appreciate it. This is actually a lot of fun. It's really fun talking to you guys. And, you know, I love your perspectives on, on things. So it's a great conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's our oh, thanks, pleasure. Sarah. It was great. Yeah. Well, uh, again, this is a new format for us. And so uh, we're super excited and appreciative of you uh, being our first guest in our new Talking Cloud format. So thanks again. Awesome. Awesome. If you need anything after the fact, just let me know. And, and happy to do this again. This was a great time today, guys. Terrific. Will do. Thanks so much, Eric. Right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hi, I'm Seth from SpiderBat. I'm excited to tell you more about SpiderBat and why we got things started. The original founders of Tipping Point, Mark Willoughby-Guamera and Brian Smith, they saw how organizations were struggling with the current security operations model, you know, how we detect and investigate potential threats. Our current threat detection tools and our investigations really rely on log data. And logs are made up of exception-based events that doesn't really capture or understand context. Well, this leads to missed attacks because we have poor quality detections and our investigations require really arduous manual analysis. It's our security analysts who have to go alert by alert, understanding with law data, well, why did this alert fire? And what are all the activities that led up to this point in time? And if it does look like a real attack has landed within the environment, well, what has been impacted, what systems, what accounts, what files have been touched by this particular attacker. And so this, this broken security operations model that really requires this, this manual, this, this real manual investigation and, uh, the, sorry, this real manual investigation truly becomes non-viable as we adopt more Linux cloud and container speed. So if you think about those environments, that rate of change, when you couple in the complexities of microservices, so I've broken out an application across multiple different containers, across ephemeral systems that are auto-provisioning up and down, well, now we've completely impaired our existing security operations model, this ability to, one, to detect a threat within that environment, but now trying to investigate within that environment where logs may not have been captured or if they were captured, the state of those systems have changed since uh, the point of time that you're investigating. So it, it really becomes just an unusable model in the environments that are now more mostly growing, the, the most fast growing environments within our company. So Mark and Brian founded SpiderBat to solve this challenge. What we call SpiderBat's Linux runtime security. It, really changes the game. It starts by recording everything. Now, I know you've heard that before from, from other vendors. So what do we mean by saying we record everything? We record system level interactions. So processes starting and stopping, network connections coming in and out, the full user sessions of activities. And then we do that while recognizing their causal connections. So for example, when I log into a system, a network connection comes in, 
It creates a shell for me because I logged in successfully, and then I'm executing commands out of that shell. Well, these activities all have a relationship with each other that log data doesn't really capture or represent. What SpireBat does is we capture every activity as it's happening across all your systems, and we're recognizing these causal connections. And we do these for all activities, good, bad, or otherwise, without without an alert, without anything being triggered. We're just constantly capturing these activities into a causal map of your environment. And with this map, we can now accurately detect threats. And we detect them from their initial entry point because we build a trace of activities leading up to suspicious activities and from those the full impact of those suspicious activities. And this allows us to immediately answer fundamental questions of what happened, what's been impacted, how do we clean it up, and how do we prevent it? Let me show you an example. Let me be able to show you how this works. All right, what you are looking at is an example of how SpiderBat captures activities and assigns causal relationships to these activities. So in this example, we have a system, and that's the S node. When that system booted, it started a process called system D, and we see other processes that were initiated by system D. Now, I'm not showing you all the activities of this Linux server. Uh, for example, I could go and add in you know, all of the different processes that are launched by system D when this particular uh, server booted. Uh, and each of these would have a branch of children underneath all of these. So I'm showing you just a, a snippet of, of activities on this particular system, but it gives you an example of everything that we're capturing. So I'm showing you the SSH daemon, the database server, MySQL, and a web server that are running on this particular system called Ubuntu. I can also see with the gray badges, the user permission boundaries. So system D runs as root. You can see that the database MySQL has a service account it runs as called MySQL. And you can see the web server has its own service account called WWData. Additionally, I can see network connections as they come in and out of the system. So I can see with the C node here, a connection uh, and the, the direction here, it came into the web server. It was received by one of the web listeners uh, that runs as WWData. Similarly, we can see network connections going out and what process led to that network connection going out. And then lastly, we can color this graph with flags. A flag is a suspicious activity, maybe a rare event that's uncommon to run on a server, or it's a known indicator of compromise, uh, perhaps being related to threat intel that's fed into our system. What's really different about SpiderBat is we don't alert you to a flag. A flag is just context. It's the color on the graph. We can create notifications around when we see multiple flags and a depth of activity because we have the full context of the trace available now to make determinations. In this example, we see a single flag with absolutely no outcome. Nothing has been causally related to the impact of anything after that flag occurred. If there are new activities 
this entire trace will get rescored by Spider-Bat as we see new additional activities that are causally related uh, to this flag and, and including any other flags. So let me show you an example of what that looks like. So here we have, you can see this is, there's a more activity in this particular trace. And more importantly, we see more flags. So this is indicative of an attack coming into the system where we have flags that are causally connected to each other. Uh, and we have just more activity, more breadth of activity. We can see here that, you know, similar to our previous trace, we have a single web server. We have a single server uh, marked by the S node. It launched system D, and which launched the web server Apache. And we have a network connection that came into Apache. And we see now multiple processes that were instigated by this network connection. Now, if I go ahead and click on a node, I can open up the details pane. The details pane shows me additional detail about the selected node on the graph. In this case, I'm looking at the shell that was spawned by the web server after this network connection came in. And I can see by reading into the details, it's very curious. I have a ping command, but there's no IP address. Instead of an IP address, I have a semicolon and then this long print F string, which I can't see, I don't, I don't read binary, so I don't know what that, that does. I can see that it was read into a temp file. Permissions were changed on that temp file. Uh, and then it, it executes that temp file. And when it's done executing, it'll delete that temp file. And as I click next node here, I can move temporally through the graph and I can get to, here's the ping that didn't, doesn't ping anything. Uh, and then it changes files on this temp file that was created, and then it executes that temp file. Now, like I said, I, I don't know what this temp file is. Looks like it's just randomly generated letters, but with SpiderBat, I can see the outcome of running this file. So these are the causal outcomes from executing this file, first of which is an outbound network connection uh, that goes out on port 4444. And I can see a shell gets created uh, by this. Now, a security analyst could look at this level of information and now very quickly make an assessment that there is an attack on the web server that has created a shell on the web server, and it's created now an outbound network connection or a reverse shell. I have enough information to know that this is a real attack. I know where the attack is coming from. And I know what has been impacted already uh, by, by the attacker. Um, and I can see that uh, they've now are on the system and they're doing reconnaissance activity. Uh, this command here, ID, you know, who am I running as? They're looking at directories, they're reading files. And all of this has occurred, if I go back to the, the first connection, the, the first activity here, uh, which was that network connection coming in, the relative time marker tells me all of this has transpired within two minutes. So within two minutes, this attacker has been able to perform a, a code insertion into the web server, get a shell, uh, create a reverse shell uh, back to their system, and is now rooting around the, the, the system trying to find information. So and with the number of flags here, 
Spider-Bot recognizes the severity of this, not by a single flag that now the analyst has to investigate, you know, is this real? What's happened? What's led up? I have this entire picture immediately available to me as a security analyst to see the collection of flags and how they were causally connected and anything else that the that this attacker has performed. So even these activities that aren't flags, uh, but they're causally connected to this trace. So I have that complete picture at my disposal. Now, if for some reason we didn't stop the attacker, certainly have enough information here to you know, block the IP address, um, sort of shut down maybe the network connection to the server, clean up the web page that uh, the attacker was able to infiltrate using a code insertion, et cetera. For some reason, we weren't, uh, we didn't stop the attacker. Well, Spiderbat, you know, just, it's constantly building out this graph. It's constantly building this map of causal connections. And it's helping me to focus on only the causal activities related to you know, this set of flags and any other flags that may be generated within the trace, which means if we allow more time to occur, the attacker is going to continue to, in this case, uh, is able to escalate privileges to Douglas. Now, again, looking at the time here, I can see 23 hours passed between this node and this node. You can see, you know, now it's minus 23 hours. Well, what happened? I can see that as that attacker was doing discovery, doing reconnaissance on the system, came across an HT password file, and 23 hours later, the attacker was able to become Douglas. Well, with SpiderBat, we continue to follow the trace, even if that is across privileged user escalations as they're changing user sessions. Uh, and now they're Douglas, and you can see they continue to do more discovery here until they realize that they can move laterally to yet a whole other server. With SpiderBat, whether it's long periods of time, user sessions, systems, and you can see all the flags here generated on the second system here, we just continue to track the causal activity as a trace. Uh, now, you can remember the, all of the different processes that I showed you running on the system. There's lots of other activities that are occurring on these servers, other users that are connecting, other network connections going in and out. In our typical log analysis, we will run pivot searches, pivot searches on, you know, show me all the users' activities, show me all the network connections uh, on these systems, show me all the firewall traffic. You're getting all these logs and now trying to manually connect well, what's related to my investigation uh, and how it might be related to my investigation. With SpiderBat, I just have a clear, focused view of exactly what's causally related to this set of activities, uh, and, and uh, as well as any new activities that may be created, even as I'm investigating. So I have a complete picture to understand what's happened, what's been impacted. In this case, I can see what files have been touched, what user accounts have been uh, impacted, uh, compromised by the attacker, what services have been compromised by the attacker, what other systems has the attacker been on. So I have a complete understanding of the scope to understand the impact of this. And now I can contain this threat and I can go and prevent this type of attack in the future with the information provided by SpiderBat. So this is a uh, 
one example of how SpiderBot functions, whether it's an external attack like this, an insider threat, uh, maybe even just a misconfiguration, we capture the ripple effect of these activities and give you that focused lens of exactly what's happened and the scope of what's happened so that you can completely clean up this activity from your environment. Uh, I hope that this has been a, a great understanding of what SpiderBot does, why we built the solution the way we did to really counter uh, a lot of the current impracticalities of today's security operations model. And if you are interested, I invite you to take a closer look at SpiderBat, where at our website, spiderbat.com, you can book a demo with us. We'll give you a personalized demo based on, on the needs that you have within your environment, as well as give you the ability to uh, try out SpiderBat, whether you want to use our Defend the Flag Linux challenges, where we've captured uh, attacks just like this and uh, can quiz you on your ability to recognize the attack, or being able to install using our free tier been able to run SpiderBat within your own environment and see exactly how tracing looks. Uh, thank you again for your time.